There is a moment in every nation's life where it has to look at itself and ask, what do we have that's going to cause a complete change in this nation? What's afflicting us? And the message is very simple. This virus will change our lives forever. All of our lives, our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. Not necessarily by disease, but by the havoc that has wreaked on the economy and the security of the individuals who believed that they were immune to this kind of onslaught. Having a point of care rapid test would be game changing for us right now. I will be relentless in my request to you. My expectations are high because you've delivered for us before and I really know that you can deliver for us again if we have this consortium that works together for the benefit of the American people. Let me first of all send a message to my colleagues in this industry. This is your finest hour. This is the hour where no matter what people say about you, no matter what people think about you, you will be able to tell your children and your grandchildren that you made a difference. And that difference is what matters. And that message needs to go to every single scientist, every single biotech CEO, every single one of us. This is the hour where we stand up and we make a difference. Well, I am delighted to introduce my special guest on today's podcast, Dr. Jeremy Levin. Dr. Levin has had a long and illustrious career in the biopharmaceutical industry, in big pharma, in the generic side of our industry, and now as the CEO of a small biotech startup. And since last June, he has served as the chair of Bio's board of directors. Jeremy, welcome to I Am Bio. Hello, Jim. What a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. So we have a lot of fascinating issues to discuss, but before we dive into all of that, I want to ask you, who is Jeremy Levin? What has been your life's journey before you worked for the first biopharmaceutical company? Geez, Jim, that's a, <laughs> a many-year story. I'm not sure your listeners want to hear this. Well, just give us a little background in your life. <laughs> so I... Uh essentially come from a family who were refugees from apartheid, born in South Africa on a farm. And we fled South Africa to go to what was then Rhodesia and had to flee there again, from there again. Um, my father was a reporter and published newspapers in counterpoint to uh, what was being said in the government. From there, I was sent to Israel and had first-hand experience of watching the, the various wars and then from there to uh, Great Britain, where I finished my schooling, went on to university. And then finally, one day, many years later, when I had graduated medical school, I heard in, about this wonderful thing called biotechnologie while in Geneva, listening to somebody about a company called Biogen. And Biogen, of course, is Biogen. So I thought I had to see what was going on in this incredible country of America with this great area called biotechnology. And I flew over expecting to spend one year. And here we are 33 years later. Uh -huh. So I'm not sure I can master the, the accent. But um, so now, why don't you um, summarize your career in biotechnology? Um, you've, you've been in one of the world's, um, several of the world's largest pharma companies and You've been on the, as we said, on the generic side, and now you run one of the smallest biotechs. So what's the career trajectory consisted of? Well, at its core, Jim, across my entire life being a doctor, I've always felt that no matter where I sat in whatever environment, whatever platform, it was all about finding a medicine for somebody and making that person better. So I started in a very small biotech company, and then I moved into my own, took the risk and started up a genetic testing company, which was bought eventually by what is today Genzyme, and had the great pleasure of being tutored by and mentored by Henry Tamir um, and Dave McLaughlin. And being a very a physician, having Dave McLaughlin as your tutor as a, 
as a financial tutor, you couldn't have wanted better. From there, I, with Henry's encouragement, I started another company, became the CEO, did multiple transactions. It was a yeast-based screening of new drugs, early days when we were trying to find out about how do you find new medicines. And then from there, went on to uh, join Novartis as the second or third employee at Novartis Institute of Biomedical Research as it, as it broke ground in the old sugar factory in, uh, in Cambridge. Really early days of the sort of complete revolution of biotech in Cambridge. Spent a terrific five or six years at, uh, at Novartis learning about how to do business development, doing hundreds and hundreds of academic deals to begin with, and then multiple large transactions. And one of the first transactions I'm so proud to have done is with El Nylum, John Mariganori's company. I, I know we invested $600 million. I'm not sure what we got out of it, but I do know what's come from it. It's a wonderful, wonderful company. Um, and from there, I went to Bristol Myers Squibb with the intent to really change a company which was in deep trouble at that stage. It had a its board was reshuffling its its CEO had been dismissed. They had a temporary CEO. The head of commercial was under indictment. And yet, underlying all of that, Jim, was an incredible company with a really great heart, terrific people in it. And Jim Cornelius was a CEO par exemplar who basically said, look, we either have to fix this company or we have to sell this company. And he brought in two key, key new hires, one myself, another one, the CFO, Jean-Marc Huet, and we were given the charter to help define how you could help change this company. And what was striking about it, you had a great head of R&D, Elliot Hillback there, not Elliot Hillback, sorry, Elliot Hillback, of course, was at Genzyme, Elliot Siegel. Um, Elliot Siegel was running R&D, really wanted to move the company into biotechnology. And we all defined what became known as the biopharma strategy for Bristol Myers Squibb, and then I defined what was called the string of pearls strategy, which led to the acquisition of multiple different trends, multiple different biotech companies with the intent of building the, uh, the pipeline. And of course, amongst those who we were very fortunate, we were able to acquire Medorex. And in acquiring Medorex, we set the stage in 2009 for the revolution in immuno-oncology at the time, of course, only 10 or 11 trials ongoing. And before the COVID, 2,500 in the industry. So in 10 years, a complete revolution. From Bristol, I, was, I got a very interesting call some years later. I was very happy at Bristol. Wonderful company, really great growth. We're in a wonderful trajectory. But then a, a colleague of mine of many, many years ago, not a colleague, a boss of mine many years ago, Shimon Perez, called me up and said, would I consider running Teva, which was in trouble and then needed to have new blood from abroad to come and fix it. And he was, of course, the Shimon Peres. He was the Shimon Peres, the president of Israel. And I turned to my wife and I said to her, okay, what do you think? And she said, by gosh, that company looks in huge trouble. Do you really want to take it on? And I said, well, that's not the question. I said, do you want to go and do something, try and do something special? And she said, why not? And so we got on a plane and we flew to Israel and I got the chance to learn about Teva more than I knew before. Then the chance to really dig into the manufacturing, the issues that they'd faced, and then started the very, very arduous, but quite, quite doable uh, steps to turn it around. And as I did that, so I ran into what some would call is a situation not unusual when you try and change, you find those who don't want to change. But I laid out a strategy which I felt was clear. And once you lay out that and you are very convinced of it, there's no point in trying to fight change, those who don't want change. And the board did not want change. And at that stage I left and returned to the United States. Um, unfortunately, as history has seen, Teva did choose to proceed down the path that I decided was really not going to be productive. 
and unfortunately a great name now has to be re-established. It will be re-established, but it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of effort, and at the end of the day, uh, was unnecessary. What you see today now is my return to the United States was fantastic. I had a choice, Jim, choice to go back, run another large company, or start from the beginning. And I asked myself a very hard question. What matters most to you? And what matters most is not running the biggest company. It's not making the most money. It's all about fixing a medical need that is absolutely unserved. And so I chose to found with my own capital and that of my family, Ovid, with the intent that we would make a dent, maybe bend the curve completely in rare disease of the brain, inherited rare disease of the brain, diseases which nobody had dared to tackle, nobody wanted to tackle. And I believe there was a good reason to believe that this area was ripe, that it had all the scientific capabilities under, underlying it that led to, would lead to a revolution. And the six years, or the five and a half years since that time has proven me right. This is exactly the same as immuno-oncology, Jim. 2009, nobody wanted to be in it. It was considered a failed area. 10 years later, there are literally hundreds of companies in the area of rare diseases of the brain, when I went into it, there was nobody, for example, in the area of Angelman's. Today, there are 12 major companies. So we're going to bend the curve of at least one, and maybe several of these. And with a bit of luck, with a bit of luck, Jim, we're going to make a cure here. I have every expectation that you will succeed. And since you have nothing else to do, you decided to become the chairman of Bio. And <laughs> we thank you for that. But you've come at a pretty unique time in history. Um, the science, as I like to say, is galloping. It's more promising than ever, more hope for patients than ever in history. And yet at the same time, the political and the public opposition to the pharmaceutical industry has never been so strident or so negative. Um, we are seven months away from a presidential election where our industry is likely to be in the crosshairs again. And we're in the midst of the worst global pandemic in this century. So as more people come to grips with the severity of this pandemic and the contagiousness of this virus, the world is counting on our scientists as never before to deliver us from this danger. So as chairman of BioGeremy, what's your message to people all over the world who are slowly realizing that biotech is the great and in fact the only hope of humanity to end this anxious period of fear, sickness, and death? There is a moment in every nation's life where it has to look at itself and ask, what do we have that's going to cause a complete change in this nation? What's afflicting us? And the message is very simple. This virus will change our lives forever. All of our lives, our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives, without a doubt. Not necessarily by disease, but by the havoc that it has wreaked, that has wreaked on the economy and the, and the security of the individuals who believed that they were immune to this kind of onslaught. But there's tremendous hope here, Jim. The reason is that for the last 25 years and more, actually, 30 years plus, United States capital markets, scientists, and others have invested in a unique engine. That engine is the engine of biotech. This is a repository of knowledge, capability, and intellectual horsepower that is unique in the world. It's not huge, a couple hundred thousand people involved in it, but its impact is beyond our borders. We've revolutionized cancer, we've revolutionized viral disorders. And now with all the knowledge that we've gained over that 25 years, this entire industry is pivoting to face the onslaught of coronavirus. It's my firm belief that this industry will lead to novel vaccines. It will lead to novel treatments. And most certainly we're going to beat this back. There is no doubt that we were hit on the side of the head, but we should never have allowed that to happen. It's an unnecessary crisis. 
that crisis could have been prevented if we had all learned together what we learned in the last two waves of pandemics. But we've learned a lot from those pandemics intrinsically by understanding what the virus is, how it operates, and taking the learnings of how to sequence the genes of that virus and basically bringing it together to very quickly in lightning speed to make new vaccines. So without those experiences, we couldn't be reacting in the way we have now. So I have great hope, Jim, that this engine of biotech is going to go not into fourth gear, but into fifth and sixth gear and will absolutely nail this. Now, it will do that not by itself. It will do that in concert with large companies, companies who want to bring their manufacturing power to the table to help this. It'll do it also with the help of the government agencies who understand that we are in crisis today. The message I'd give to everybody is what you have in front of you is the opportunity to see the secret weapon that has been bubbling through our nation, delivering us cures in all sorts of different areas. It's now going to deliver a flood of options to really hammer back this disease. And it will do it, definitely. I have no doubt. In your role as leader of the board, the chairman of our board, you and I, I as the president and CEO, have taken on uh, the notion that we bio are the, really the only organization in the world that could actually serve as the, at the, as the hub of the organizer of, a, of the industry-wide response. And so, of course, we've come up with the Bio-Coronavirus Collaboration Initiative, and your leadership has been paramount in that. Would you talk a little bit about, um, what summarize what we've done and uh, what your aspirations are for, for our leadership role as a trade association? It's taken about 15 plus 17 years now to build an organization that has the ability, number one, to attract a great membership, which in our case, there are over 700 different members, the vast majority of the innovative companies in the country. It also has many of the largest companies, and we've welded them into what I'd call is a pretty jolly good group of boards and capabilities that understand how to maximize the value of medicines to patients. And then the second thing it is, is that this organization has focused in the last several years on only two things. Number one, innovation, and number two, patients. And because those are inherent, and we have the membership, and we have the leadership within bio to do this, it is not just an imperative, it is essential that we step forward. We feel this is what we do, Jim. All of those hundreds of companies out there want to contribute. Everybody wants to go to the lab. Everybody wants to roll up their sleeves and make a difference. So what here you have in bio is essentially the channel whereby all that energy, incredible energy, can be harnessed, can be brought to bear, focused on problems, first of all, by assembling all the knowledge of all these different companies, secondarily by holding a virtual summit of all of them, connecting these companies with the different arms of government who could help. And then tertiary, as we start to sort of break this down, to figure out which company can do what, to foster collaboration between different companies that never imagined working together. And that's incredibly important. All this is catalyzed through the trade organization. And the role of the trade organization becomes something different. We're not lobbying rights. We're doing what is right. We're not trying to extract from the nation something. We are contributing everything we can. So I think I'm, very pr I'm not just proud to be chairman. I am honored to be chairman this year. I'm honored to be involved in this fight. This is a fight which a trade organization should fight, and we will fight. This is not about dollars. This is about drugs. This is not about making somebody uh, a better, stronger industry. It's about harnessing the great strengths of this industry and focusing attention on something that it can conquer. Well said. 
So you, you made mention of the virtual summit that we had last month, 500 plus people tuned in. And, and one of the our leadoff speakers was Ambassador Bricks, um, who's uh, been put in charge of the White House's uh, efforts on, on virus. And she said this. Having a point of care rapid test would be game changing for us right now. I will be relentless in my request to you. My expectations are high because you've delivered for us before. And I really know that you can deliver for us again if we have this consortium that works together for the benefit of the American people. Jim, the evidence has demonstrated that when you face an infectious disease, the first and most important thing that you need to do is to establish what is the agent, the virus, the bacteria, whatever it is that's causing the infectious disease. The next thing is, can you, is, can you test that somebody has already had the disease? If you cannot do that, you are blind because you can be, every single doctor can be fooled completely by not knowing what is causing the distress of that patient. So it's much more fundamental than expectations of the White House. There is a medical expectation, a desperate medical need to know who and what disease, what disease is actually afflicting the individual. Now, when you look at the public health side of this, once you know you have an agent as infectious as this virus, and it's three or four times more infectious than the flu, you absolutely need to be able to isolate and get away from, get individuals who are ill away from others and prevent individuals who are not yet infected from being infected. So you need to be able to test them. And this is an ABC. This is as basic as you can imagine. So at the end of the day, what one would have hoped to have happened as we watched this crisis unfold in China, that we could have geared up then, established the kinds of testing that we needed to do, which would have been mass testing, rapid testing of everybody we could lay our hands on. Now we're doing that. And thanks to companies like Roche, who with the help of the White House and the FDA, rapidly got their gene testing, their genetic testing, their ability to test whether you have the virus. And then companies like Henry Schein, who turned to antibody testing, which they were able to get from Korea, they have tests that can address hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people quickly. But there's much more than that. There are many, many other tests that need to be brought online. So can we do that in time? I've got reasonable confidence that we'll be able to get sufficient to make a huge dent. It would have been helpful for us to have had this earlier on. Companies like Kyogen, who were in the early days of the crisis of afflicting New York, were being pleaded with by different hospitals to find test kits to test them. And indeed, they were found eventually. Production went up. So we're now three or four weeks into this and we're beginning to see the flow. This is as if you were marshalling your tanks. The tanks weren't anywhere near the front line. They were 500 miles behind. They had to be loaded onto trucks, driven out to the front line. Well, we're close to the front line right now. Jim, I believe at the end of the day, we will be have sufficient diagnostics. And thank heavens, because we really need them. And, and we're certainly going to need them as we try to figure out how to get back to the workplace because we're going to need the serum testing, right? In order to determine who has had the virus, who has overcome it, and uh, to the, what extent we still don't know whether the antibodies that they've developed in their immune system will protect them from the virus going forward. But, but being able to decide who can go back to work and who can't is still going to be very much ahead of us for the months to come, right? You bet, German. Can you imagine can you truly imagine in what the schools or the courthouses where crowds will come together, that if you haven't tested that somebody has or doesn't have this virus that can jump out at you, can spread like lightning. If you're not tested and you don't know who's been tested, you don't know who has actually not got this any longer, but is safe, 
how are you going to be able to gather with confidence churches, synagogues, schools, courthouses, everywhere that there is a group of people, you'll need to know, have we gone through this? So I believe that this diagnostics, the serum tests are critical. The, the pure diagnosis of do you have the virus is critical. And indeed, as we roll into the therapeutics, how rapidly can we clear the virus from the system will become incredibly important. And you'll only do that by measuring, have you got rid of the virus from your body? Well, you have been a huge advocate for science, evidence-based decision-making, and I would say public truth-telling. So at this moment, you, people are desperate to protect themselves, to save themselves, really, and, and their loved ones. But there's a fog of disinformation on the internet uh, and even speculation coming from, if I dare say, the president about what drugs might work, really without the benefit of clinical trials, scientific data, and FDA approval. So, Jeremy, what, what is your advice to people who are hearing and thinking that they have nothing to lose by following the advice of people who are really not trained scientists or physicians? Jim, a long time ago, I learned the power of a medicine. When you give a pill or an injection to somebody, you change their lives. Now, sometimes you adjudicate how much of a medicine that you're going to give. Does the medicine have side effects? Will it help that patient more than the disease or will it actually worsen the disease? Now, in the case of all of the information that we have in front of us, it is imperative that we have fact-based understanding, clinical understanding of what a drug does and what a drug doesn't do. Let me give you an example. Let's take the example of a battle. In a battle, if you're not hearing facts about where the enemy's coming, you could be sending your troops to completely the wrong place. Now, in this battle that we have, in fact, we could be sending the wrong weapons to fight somebody. If, you can't, if somebody's coming at you with a tank, you don't send out your horsemen with spears to tackle a, ta a tank. It just doesn't happen. But you'll lose a lot of people that way. Now, today in our medicines that we are looking at, there are a number of them. Many are very interesting. All need to be tested. We know that these chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are used extensively and have been used for malaria. And we also know that it has very severe side effects. Some countries have actually banned it. That means that it has what's called a risk benefit profile that you need to understand. Some patients may benefit from, but we need to have the data that shows it to us exquisitely. As of now, we do not know the right dose. We don't know when it should be applied. And we don't know yet how much, who should get it exactly and at what stage of the disorder. This is more than the fog of war. This is a moment where we have to ask ourselves, you know, what have we done to mitigate any risks with these patients? So as people look at these different therapeutics, everybody's got to make their choice with the advice of their doctors, no doubt about it. But I would say that the question they should pose is, what do we know scientifically about the effects of this drug? It doesn't matter what drug it is, be it an anti-IL-6, where there are huge trials, 2,000 people are being trialed right now. Great company, Regeneron, is really stepping forward. And is, it has a very interesting drug. It's going to try out the right way to see what are the results there. You've got Roche doing the same with their drug. They're doing a rigid, very specific trial. And at the end of it, we'll know. We'll know exactly how to use these drugs, which is fantastic. And you'll be able to rely on that scientific data. What you can't do with medicines is rely on gut. You need to be able to follow the science. And it is one thing for a doctor with a patient who's running out of options to try a drug like that as a, perhaps a last-ditch effort. Um, and it's quite another thing for folks at home to be thinking they ought to take a drug like that prophylactically, not even knowing that the potential 
uh, hazard that poses to their hearts. So a lot of the most exciting work on therapeutics and vaccines for COVID is happening from in small biotechs. Could you summarize the, the, the range of biotech solutions that you expect to be arrayed against this pandemic? And this is a really, really the great strength of biotech. Some of these solutions will be nearer term, others will be longer term. And they'll range quite interestingly in array of different ways of thinking. I'm going to start right at the beginning of this. The number one is obviously the diagnostics. Diagnostics are going to come out now in a way that they haven't done and supported by the FDA who have been wonderful in their way of really accelerating approvals of these. This is going to be laid in, in doctors at bedside, doctors at their homes, even drive-through testing is going to be the norm and should be the norm and I'm delighted to see that the federal government is supporting that, particularly the drive-through testing. This is really important. They're doing a very important work there. A lot of this is going to come from biotech, some from very big companies. Then you'll have a very interesting aspect. Over the last 10 years, we've developed artificial intelligence. Tools are being used to identify an already existing medicines that might have an impact. Old generics have been around that might have an effect, but there are, what is happening is that these AI tools are being used to us by, in a combination of biotech and high-tech, are being used to explore which of these really have evidence that might suggest they should be tested in a good clinical trial to say they work. And this is exciting. This will occasion a whole revolution in the years to come of how you look at data from libraries that have been around for 50 years to identify useful entities. Then we go on from that, Jim, to new uh, therapeutics. These will take a little time. These are what could be, for example, small molecules that, have, that you take as a pill or it could be injected. And these are going to take time. These are going to take at least a year to come online unless unless they are already existing and used in other areas. Gilead has one drug that they're testing right now. Remdesivir. Yes, exactly right, remdesivir. They've moved it from one disease to another. And if it works, we'll know that it's rigidly tested. We'll know that how much, what the dose is. We'll know exactly when to use it. And what it does is it interferes with the ability of the virus to replicate. Yep. That's exactly right. Over the last 30 years, we've learned how the machinery of a virus can be interrupted. You can stick a, literally a little molecule into the cogwheels of replication of those uh, viruses and you can stop them cold. And Gilead's done a fabulous job of this in leading first in hepatitis C. And we know that they have a great leadership and understanding. They've done a similar thing in the HIV. So hopefully they'll do the same here again. I think what's fascinating about that is the virus comes into the host and it, it doesn't have, doesn't bring with it all of the materials that it needs to replicate. So it has to extract them from the interior of the cell in which it's, that it's pierced. And as I understand it, you're the scientist, I'm not, but as I understand it, what happens essentially is the remdesivir can cause the virus to, to select the wrong building block. Um, and as you sort of said, jammed up its, its equipment uh, for, for replicating. Do I have that close to right? That's about as right as you can be, Jim. That's exactly right. These viruses, they're, they're minute. They're much, much smaller than a bacteria. They can slip in. They can't carry everything with them. They were never created to survive by themselves. They were always supposed to be a pirate. They were always designed to get into the cell, force the cell to replicate them, and then kill the cell, and then burst out and infect elsewhere. So what you've got here, what you've got here is the ability to, as that pirate enters the cell, to really put something right into its machinery so it can't hijack the machinery of cell building. And that's a, just a phenomenal discovery. These discoveries started being made 20 years ago and they're going to accelerate now. There's this thing called the spike protein uh, that the virus has that enables it to uh, attack and enter the cell. And so some of the drugs I think are aimed at, uh, at thwarting that. 
Yeah, it's, it's again, let me draw you back on that analogy of a pirate. When the pirate basically hooks onto another ship, it basic, they throw over a grappling hook. What you've got in these spikes, that's the grappling hook. So if you can cut the cord, if you can block the way the grappling hook, just make it slide away from the surface of the other cell, the virus can't stick. It just gets swept away and can't get into the cell. So this is another way of tackling viruses. So we have several which could effectively stop them sticking to another cell and getting in. Second, once they're in, kill them dead, stop them from replicating themselves. A couple right there. And then you have another one indeed. You actually, while they're floating around in your system, if you can get vaccine to, to be developed, if you can make that, and I'm confident we will get one, that vaccine can actually arm the body with the tools, the antibodies, to go and grapple with that virus before it even gets to a cell, move it into the disposal system of the body and get it out of the body dead. So I think there are a couple of ways that we're going to do here that are at least three different strategies, each one of which is different from the other. And all of these strategies, Jim, have been developed and enhanced for other diseases over the last uh, 30 years in biotech. And the strength of biotech will be bringing them all together. And what amazes me and has amazed me for every hour of the last, as you mentioned, almost 16 years, going on 16 years that I've been running this organization, is the amount of exquisite knowledge that our folks have, have been able to master about what happens at the, at the cellular level, at the, at the genetic level, at the molecular level, things that are completely invisible to the naked eye and actually understand how these little um, exchanges and how these little little actions within that, that tiny little world function well enough to then um, make medicines that will alter the, the, the otherwise natural course. It's just, it's, it's stunning and it's getting more stunning by the, by the day. Well, Jim, you know, that's what you take when you take some of the brightest students, brightest industrial, scientists, you bring them from all over the world, and you finance them in, a, in the capital structure of America, you bring money to bear to help them find this knowledge. And then you look at that, and you take each one of the discoveries that they have and ask the question, can I make a medicine? Once you do that, you build an engine. It's like I said right at the beginning, this engine it didn't just arrive, it's been here for years and years and years, and it's been building on itself. And each time, you run an experiment, and these experiments are very expensive. They cost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Most of them fail. Most of them fail. But you build on the knowledge that you've got. You learn from that error, and you take a new direction. You take a direction that might have, um, that without the failure that you've had, you build on. And so, you know, Jim, this is not a, this is not a trivial industry because much of what we do fails. But much of what nearly everything we do, we learn from. And once you learn from it, you can build. So yes, it's wonderful to see all the different ways and understandings that we have created, the knowledge that we've created. But it's been done on the, on the back of billions of dollars of investment, tens and tens of hundreds of failures sad failures. I can't tell you how disappointing it is whenever a drug fails for the people who've been working on it. But from each one of those failures has come a handful of successes because you've learned more. And as you learn more, you build industry stronger. But a number of the cynics in Congress and in the media were very quick to assume the worst about our industry's response to this virus. They assumed that we would see it as a chance to price gouge and deny access to the drugs that we develop to people who might not otherwise uh, afford them. So Jeremy, how do you view our ethical responsibility in this crisis? And do you think we'll, we're, we are living up to these standards? There is no doubt that this industry will live up to those standards. I have spent 30 years as a physician, as a scientist working in Africa, working elsewhere. Every single individual that I have met personally in this industry is devoted to finding cures for patients. That's what they do. That's what we do. And 
I understand the anguish and the frustration of members of Congress and members of the public. They have been treated poorly. We need to own that up, Jim. Not us, not us but over the last 25 years, there have been mistakes made by this industry. They definitely have. Prices have risen and risen in some areas where there's no justification. There was no investment in the product, zero. And what you had was a product that was one price a few years ago, today, many times that price. These things are not acceptable. But one of the things that I've noticed, Jim, over the last four or five years, is that people are willing to call them out. When I say people, I'm not talking about the, uh, the folk in Congress. I'm not talking about the public. I'm talking about individual CEOs, many of them. Jim, over the last several years, hundreds of CEOs have signed on to a value-based proposition for who we are. In other words, agreeing to call out those who bad, behave badly agreeing to make sure that all our drugs get the kind of access that they need so that patients are served best. You yourself have championed the whole concept that no patient should have to, you know, the patient's money that they pay out of the pocket at the, at the pharmacy should be very limited. This is very important. You don't want people who are ill going and pulling out hundreds and hundreds of dollars and then perhaps not even being able to afford a medicine. That's ridiculous. Medicines are meant to help people. They're not meant to impoverish people. So I, what I, would, I think we'll have a battle on our hands to convince people, Jim, but I think you do this day by day, proof by proof, step by step, consistently doing what we know what we're doing, that we're doing, which is to deliver on the promises that we've made to ensure that everybody who needs a medicine gets it, to ensure that those who behave poorly are called out and to ensure that we focus on delivering the best possible medicine, whether it is something novel or like something like one of the other drugs that we talked about in Gilead, where you can quickly shift and ask the question, can it help in a different area? So yes, it's not easy, Jim. Even in the midst of this crisis, there will be skepticism. But I don't think for one minute we should allow that skepticism to detract from the central mission which we have, which is how do we help patients? How do we destroy this virus and prevent it doing the damage that it's doing to our nation and the people within it? Well, in fact, Jeremy, your unwavering mantra has been all about two things, patience and innovation. So elaborate on what that, those two words mean to you in the context of our industry. Well, patients are easy, Jim. We're all patients. Every single one of us is going to be afflicted by a disease. None of us want it. None of us can prevent it. And it's the nature of humankind that whatever you do, you're going to have some form of illness at some stage. And what that means to me is that the core, the covenant that we have is the covenant to make sure that we get what we can medicines, what medicines we can that will help ameliorate the suffering of that patient and as soon and as fast as we can. And what that means is policies that affect access. We ensure that we have the trade policies, the uh, FDA regulations, anything that can speed getting a medicine to a patient and then pay for that. Once you do that, when you've got that medicine, you know you're gonna change that person's life. And of course, Jim, it's, it's, it's very easy to get the big numbers and the trillions of dollars at the end of the day of the hundreds of billions of dollars that by curing cancer, we're impacting our economy, that big stuff. Now I'm talking about what it means to have your mother, your father, your uncle, your grandfather, your child with you for 20 years more. 30 years more, being able to have dinner with them, being able to talk to them, watch them succeed. So let's forget about the important but critical aspect of increasing the productivity of our nation. Let's talk about something real. Every one of us is a patient. None of us want to see a family member get ill. And when we do, we want to know they've got medicine. So our industry needs to commit to that. 
be intimate and understand how the patient is, who the patient is, what the patient does, what the patient needs. And then on innovation, it's really a different thing entirely. So you got to develop your medicine. What's it going to be? And what that means is let's not exploit, let's not accept that we know everything there is to know about a disease. Let's assume that we know very little. Let's assume that when somebody has congestive heart failure, that gee, those drugs that were invented 35 to 50 years ago are no longer the ones that should be looked after, should be used in these patients. They may be okay. They were okay in my grandfather's time, but they shouldn't be okay today. We need to focus on making changes to those medicines, finding new ways of attacking a disease, focusing all of the kinds of policies that will allow you to find something not just new, but better. It doesn't have to be brand new, but it has to be better than it was before. So in order to do that, you have to focus policies on stimulating the capital that will invest in it. You have to focus on how you can ensure that the best of the best scientists come to this country and can bring all their knowledge here. You have to focus on the fact that you need to have really clever, thoughtful clinical trials that can assess the effect of your medicine on an individual. And then at the end of the day, Jim, you know, it's a funny thing to say, but uh, it's all very good to find something. It's all very good to test it in people. It's all very good to have it uh, approved, which is fantastic. You have to manufacture it. So you need at all levels of this chain, you have to have innovation, which will deliver change that is beneficial to the other half of the equation, which is the patient. So innovation for me is, goes hand in hand with care of the patient. So I mentioned that your chairmanship has coincided with some of the most toxic rhetoric directed at the pharmaceutical industry. And mostly it's aimed at pricing. Um, people think that's what the problem is. As you mentioned, the real problem is more about higher and higher deductibles and what was required to come from the pockets of the patients. Um, so do you think that our response to this crisis will be a turning point in the public's esteem, diagnostics and the therapeutics and the vaccines to save their lives and protect them into the future. Jim, let me first of all send a message to my colleagues in this industry. The message is simple. I can't guarantee there'll be a change, but I would like to urge you, this is your finest hour. This is the hour where no matter what people say about you, no matter what people think about you, you will be able to tell your children and your grandchildren that you made a difference. And that difference is what matters. And that message needs to go to every single scientist, every single biotech CEO, every single one of us. This is the hour we stand up and we make a difference. Now, as to your other side of this, Jim, I believe that I'm a perennial optimist. If I wasn't, I couldn't be in drug discovery because we always fail. But when then we come back and we do it again. I believe that there is a huge sentiment in the American populace that welcomes and salutes bravery, welcomes and salutes those who actually help them. And that sentiment is something which will come to the fore. It may come slower than we want, it may come in different ways, but it will come because at the end of the day, just like penicillin, when it cured a terrible scourge, it changed people's minds about the pharmaceutical industry and the way that you had an industry that really did believe in making a difference to people's lives. So I believe we will eventually drive back the waves of sentiment that have been crashing over this industry, the negative sentiment. I don't expect it to go away easily, but I do believe that we can help move it away. I believe we can focus on communication. I believe we can talk to the kids in the schools. We can talk to the, the kids in the universities, those who are gonna be the leaders of the future. And we can talk to the public, the people who work every day like I do on my farm and 
they will know that we are actually standing at their side. But to do that, we have to walk the talk. We have to do what you said, Jim. We have to get the other components of this industry, the way that we deliver drugs, the way that we insure for drugs. We have to get them to understand that it's not just finding the medicine, it's getting the medicine to the patient that counts. And we cannot be responsible alone in making that change. So we've got a, a lot of lifting to do here, Jim. I got into this job not knowing exactly what it would be, but I was convinced that supporting and creating the conditions for success for this vital strategic industry in the United States was one of the most important things that I could do to give back to an industry which has allowed me a very rich and rewarding life. And I, for one, am proud to be able to go home and have dinner with my children and say, hey, we're really going to change the lives of some of these patients. Well, Jeremy, you used some, some wonderful imagery. You've talked about tanks and, and horses and spears, and you've talked about pirates and grappling hooks, imagery of battle. And this is a battle. And this virus is not going to raise the white flag. It's not going to surrender. So we're going to have to vanquish it and vanquish it utterly. We can. There's nothing in the science that says we can't vanquish all of the diseases that plague have plagued man for millennia. Cancer, Alzheimer's disease, ALS, uh, diabetes, you name it. Thousands of rare diseases like the ones on which you're working, Jeremy. But that will require, and the science is unstoppable unless the policy gets it wrong. And as you say, as long as, as we at Bio can help to make sure that the conditions for success are there, um, we will not only vanquish this disease, but we'll then turn our attention back to all of the other diseases and hopefully with uh, even greater success. So thank you for your leadership and thank you for being with me today. Jim, it's a great pleasure and we will win this war. Indeed. The world wants a COVID-19 vaccine that is safe, effective, and ready as soon as possible. A special Thursday version of I Am Bio will learn how the coronavirus conducts its ugly business and how scientists make medicines that can teach your body new ways to attack a hostile invader. It's no easy task, but thanks to biotech breakthroughs, we plan to do it safely in record time. Vaccine velocity is our topic on the next I Am Bio. Thank you.